Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. This is the 224th episode of my Fly Fishing Educational Podcast. I met Peter Stitcher at the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival in January. We thought it'd be a good idea to get together over Skype and geek out on bugs. This is our podcast. If you want to learn more about Ascent Fly Fishing and the most organized dude in the fishing industry, you can go to AscentFlyFishing.com. Peter's a biologist and a fly shop owner, and his company strives to provide a fish-eye view of the hatch and knowledge on how best to fish it. This episode is brought to you by Misha Gill at Speedwell Law, and now we're going to hear from Misha himself. Hi there, Misha Gill with Speedwell Law. Estate planning is an act of care and compassion towards the ones you love. I often say that estate planning isn't for you, it's for your family, and making their lives better at the hardest possible time when they've just lost uh, a loved one. So come see me in April of 2019 and receive 10% off of your estate planning package. We offer uh, very competitive flat rate fees for comprehensive estate planning. So mention Rob's podcast in April, get 10% off of your estate plan um, when you book a consultation. So we've got Peter Stitcher with us. You want to introduce yourself and where are you right now? Yeah, my name is Peter Stitcher, and I am uh, an aquatic biologist and the CFG, so we call that the, the chief fly geek at Ascent Fly Fishing out of Littleton, Colorado. And if you had a celebrity doppelganger that we could imagine while we're listening, who would it be? Uh, a young Luke Skywalker, you know, pre, uh, pre-beard. Uh, I think I nailed Luke Skywalker pretty, pretty well. Pre-motorcycle accident? <laughs> yes, yes, pre-motorcycle accident and then pre-robotic uh, arm from yes. uh, 
think it was film two. Yeah, Empire, right on. So are you a native to Colorado? I'm not, no. So you don't uh, get that sticker I, on your car to brag? I don't, no. Um, those just tell you, you know, which cars you should key um, you know, when they're, <laughs> they're flaunting the native sticker. But no, I uh, grew up, uh, started out uh, in, in the Midwest, spent some time in the Smokies. That's where I wet my first flies uh, outside of Knoxville. And then uh, most recently from Oregon. Okay. How old were you when you were living in the east? I guess south, middle, Atlantic? Yeah, I, w- I was pretty young. So four and five. And we still have family videos of some little Umbro shorts on at uh, the Cross-Eyed Cricket Trout Pond, um, wet my first flies. So that's where the love started was, was in the Smokies and still definitely have a, a strong affection for for fishing those little creeks back east. I, I don't think people, if they've never been to the Smokies, they're actually a huge mountain range. Yeah, it, massive and tons of opportunities to get away from the crowds and fish. The most visited park in the country? National yeah. Park? You know, I, yeah, that surprised me. I thought Rocky Mountain uh, might have uh, been close, but but not even close. Yeah, the Smokies, uh, they win it. Yeah, we did a road trip down there, my junior year of college to go backpacking and it was beautiful and we didn't pack the rods we left them in the car Uh, for weight and we got to the campsite i'm like are you kidding me yeah you know leave your sleeping bag leave the water bring the fly fly fishing stuff yeah all right so what brought you from the smokies out to oregon yeah so i mean it was kind of a long circuitous route but uh went out to oregon to to go to school and yeah one of my degrees uh, my my most recent degree is in aquatic biology so my my passion my dream uh was to build trophy fishing water to understand every aspect every facet of the habitat the environment the food what it takes to create a trophy trout and and then through that you know replicate that for for private individuals and and start building that so um, yeah, my, my love for trout and salmon uh, drove me out, out west. So when you were a kid, were you damming up creeks and submerging logs and moving rocks? Yes, absolutely. You know, building forts next to the creek, you know, using little hand lines to catch bullheads and, and cook them on the side of the creek. It was, yeah, my, my head, as much as I can even today, I am dipping for bugs and, and turning over rock. Man, it's just such a fascinating world. And if you can turn that into tenants and tips that fly fishers can tie into the end of the rod. I mean, that is my passion today. Right, right, right. Was your mom okay? I'm assuming you, you were bringing stuff home as a kid, like bullfrogs actually, in your pocket and like jars of crickets and lightning bugs. You know, it was actually my mom that taught me to fish. So, I mean, she would get up at four in the morning and I'd have a wild hair to go to some pond or, or a creek and she would drive me out there and fish with me and show me the ropes. So, yeah, it's uh, women are some of the best anglers I know, some of the most fun to fish with. And yeah, my mom let me put, you know, snapping turtles and frogs in the laundry room sink, and, and she was completely down. That's uh, awesome. Supportive. Snapping turtles. Yeah. That's different. Yeah, just little ones, you know, whatever okay. you catch. It's, it's all an adventure. Yeah, I grew up in Reston, Virginia, which at the time was still pretty, not rural, but it was built into the woods. And it was a planned community. So we had beaver ponds and creeks and lakes. And there was just so much stuff to go out and flip over rocks and collect. And I'd have salamanders in my pockets. I'd bring home snakes. And my mom was not down with it, though. 
Oh, shoot. Yeah, it's uh, – but, I mean, yeah, that, that I'm assuming kind of gave you the fascination and the passion to do what you're doing now. And, you know, I'm trying to, you know, raise my kids up the same way. We got beaver ponds behind the house and, and, and no TV. So I'm like, go out there and, you know, make your own fun. Build forts, dig holes in the mud, and uh, learn. That's the good stuff. Yeah, what are they going to learn from playing Fortnite? Yeah, as, as long as they don't know about Fortnite and texting, uh, I'm, I'm happy. So, yeah, no, there's, it's a big world out there, and I want them to be a part of it. How old are they? So my daughter is seven, and uh, my son is nine. So Aiden and Emily, and they both, uh, you know, starting young, we got them their first rods around, you know, two. A little ambitious, but uh, by four, they can roll cast a nine-foot-five weight with the best of them. And it looks like a spay rod in their hands. Yeah, they are. They're down to fish whenever, when, whenever Dad goes out. We might have to get them together this summer if we get out there. Do you have some kids? Outing. Yeah, we got a seven and a half year old, May twenty ninth of uh, twenty eleven. Yeah, that that'd be fun. Let's do it. Absolutely. All right. So we'll get back to education too. So Oregon, you knew you were going to study bugs. Was that undergraduate? So yeah, I have three bachelors and a, and a master's, but that, that final degree was a, a third bachelor's and it was in uh, freshwater aquatic biology. And so it's, it's not specifically bugs, but it's more about, you know, everything that goes into the life and world of the trout. So understanding water chemistry, um, you know, habitat, uh, different structures and sediments and soil science for the, the stream bakes and you know, botany, um, all the sciences that, that lead and build and support a healthy fishery. Oregon seems like the place to go to if you're going to study that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's some awesome schools uh, out east. I I know uh, um, in uh, Georgia there's some good schools. Colorado State's exceptional. For for salmon and trout, it's hard to beat Oregon State. And, I mean, you are in in the mecca of of big salmon and trout out there. I drove to uh, to a couple parties at Oregon State driving cross-country in college. It was yeah, quite the culture shock of my little liberal arts school in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Well, yeah, it was it was a good experience. And I mean, I went back, you know, a little later in life for this one. It took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do. So, yeah, I was spending 150 bucks a month for a, a bed in a warehouse and uh, I had a, a, a hose to shower under and you know got the degree and started living the dream. So you always knew you were going to plan on going into fishing or in in more of like a fishing related field once you got that degree? Well, yeah, after I got that degree, but my first degrees were in international studies and, and, um, you know, I thought I was going to be working in in developing nations, uh, overseas and and then, uh, a master's in counseling. You kind of are using all of that now, which we'll get to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found myself hoping my clients wouldn't show up to their appointments and I'd rather be fishing. So I figured, you know what, it's time to, time to follow the dream and and go for fish. Okay. And when did you meet your wife when all this was going down? Uh, we met at 19. We're actually celebrating our, our 15 year this year right. and uh, going to go fishing in Panama together. But uh, yeah, we met, you know, way back um, in during my first degree and oh God, I don't know, 2000. Yeah. And she's, she's been an awesome support and she's uh, you know, half owner of Ascent Fly Fishing, River Oracle and uh, the Fly Fishing Rendezvous. So are our three companies. Fantastic. That's very cool. You get to work together, hang out. So how did Ascent Fly Fishing come out of 
your degree? Were you like, you know what? There's a lot of anglers out there and you know, just not fishing the right bugs at the right time. And, and I can make them more successful with my background. Right. That's a great question. And, and I, I kind of came into it sideways. Um, you know, I, I studied aquatic biology out of the love of, of fish and their environment and, and the pursuit of fly fishing. But I was working full time as a, a biologist um, here in the Rockies. My daughter had um, a medical emergency. We thought she was going to lose a kidney. And so, I mean, I wasn't going to be able to pay for that as a biologist. And so on the side, I had a buddy, um, he's like, you know, what's happening on this river? Um, I'm going to be fishing there. And, you know, what the skills I had was I could tie flies. I mean, I've been tying commercially for a long time and I had the, the inside knowledge on, you know, I, I, I built that section of river. I did all the entomological studies. So actually, you know, during this period when you and your friend are going to be fishing there, these are the actual life cycles and the bugs that are going to be on that river. So I, I tied him up a box of flies and he comes back and said, that was the most successful fishing trip I've ever had in my life. I want to go here next. What's happening? And so I started tying some flies and, and uh, selling those to, to help pay for, for surgery for my daughter. It started to grow and other people started hearing about it. And um, all of a sudden I was making more money on a weekend uh, selling flies to, to friends and people around Denver than I was in a month as a biologist. And, and I realized like, this is the missing piece. Everyone wants to know what are they biting on? And I was uniquely positioned, um, with that inside knowledge as a biologist to be able to tell them and not just tell them, but tie the flies, build them the boxes specific to those waters and hatches. And your daughter's okay now. She's great. Yeah. She's an absolute tear. She listens to all my old punk rock music and she's down to fish and wrestle and play in the mud. So she's doing great. That's awesome. So when you were building those, tell me about building the stream. So were you doing, like, do you know Clint Paco? I do. Yeah. I think he's did, with what? Yeah. Does uh, he still do like stream restorations? Like you'll go to your property. This was, and we're talking when I knew him or met him like 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah, there's a number of firms. Um, I know uh, Solitude is a big firm based out of the, the southeast. Um, there's you know other firms out west. So I, I work with a firm called Ecological Resource Consultants, or ERC, right now. And, and what we do is my specific role is just defining, studying, building, and managing trophy fishing water. And so what we'll do is um, like the Blue River through Silverthorne. Yep. That's a it's been a gold medal section. Um, the Mycies population, the shrimp population that created that gold water status has, has kind of gone down in the last few years. So it lost its status, but, but prior to ERC coming in there, the blue river, it would flow at 1200 CFS cubic feet per second during runoff, you know, and it'd fill up that old riverbed. But most of the year, Denver is drinking the Blue River. So they're pumping water out of the dam, and it's flowing at 40 CFS. And so what happens in a river um, that's been just left to its, its, itself, um, you have 40 CFS in a river channel that wants to hold 1,000. And so there's no habitat. There's no uh, holding water for the trout. Um, so you get these very small trout. It can't sustain large bugs it can't sustain uh and hold those larger fish and also a challenge as as we populate these areas and draw more and more from the rivers we pull the energy from the river the ability of that river to sustain itself to flush out 
the gunk and the muck that drifts down into the river. And so it just silts up and builds up and gets shallower and shallower. So what we will do, you know, each river is different. There's no carbon copy, uh, you know, treatment. But for a river like the Blue, we went in and we built a low water channel. So we understood all the hydrology and the flows and the bugs and, and the potential of what could be there, uh, the demands of that river. And we create this low water channel winding through the middle of the river. So at low flow, all that energy is combined and stacked up in that low channel and it keeps nice, deep, healthy pools uh, where larger fish can grow and hold. And then at high flows, it floods that old historic channel. So things like that. And then it's kind of like the field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. So I've you, seen you that build this, yeah. literally happen where I worked for a lodge in West Virginia and we stocked like a couple thousand nine inch brook trout in a creek. And mm-hmm. I, ne- I never saw any of them that day. And then I just started moving rocks just to make some habitat. And within a minute, there were three or four brook trout behind this rock that I just stacked rocks around and just kind of made that deep slack water pocket. Out of nowhere, these fish, I don't know where they came from, but they were there because the habitat was more suitable for them. And I had built it. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And into, you know, these these rivers are going to evolve. So over time, there's going to be flood years and drought years and fires. And I mean, if it's well-designed river, it's going to mature and it's going to keep itself clean and it's going to grow. And then the bugs will come and the fish will stay and they'll get, they'll get big. So that's something I still love doing. And fortunately, I don't need to do, you know, like wastewater or snowmaking projects anymore. All these other water projects, it's just trophy uh, fishing water development. Yeah, Snowmaking so, just sucks all the water out of the streams. It does. It does. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of, a lot of people need it. A lot of people own it. That's like a whole nother topic talking about water rights, but, uh, yeah, it, uh, you know, working as a biologist and continuing in that field keeps my head in the water, learning about the fish, learning about the bugs and really building out our database of, of invertebrates that, now really covers the the lower 48 states. I mean, we can match the hatch on any water in the U.S. for our clients. So I want to, I have one question before we get into that. When a stream drops rapidly, you've got all these macroinvertebrates up under these rocks that are now dry. You know, I think of uh, like the South Holster and the Watagua. Mm-hmm. Can those critters follow that water as it recedes or they all just dry up and die and then you've got no food for the fish or other things. Well, now, how, how quick of a drop are you, are you talking about? I never, I mean, I hear about them, you know, that they'll just change the water, like the water levels will go down. Right. And all of a sudden what was wet, and we've seen this on the Salmon River, New York, where we're fishing in waist deep water. And then by lunch, it's, you know, our toes are dry. Right. And I'm wondering if that's, if four or five hours of water dropping can, do the insects and macrovertebrates, do they make it to the water? Do they follow it and live? Or did all that biomass die when the water dropped? Well, I think, um, first of all, species that are going to be found in those really variable environments that have these rapid you know, influxes of, be it water temperature or water levels, the species that are going to be found there are going to be ones that can sustain those changes. So you, you might not find, you know, a lot of like high order stoneflies um, in, in a water like that, you know, and that they need that consistent, cold, well oxygenated water. And so 
they might not be well suited for that. But you might find higher populations or larger populations of like burrowing midge larvae or a lot of blooming olives and other swimming type mayflies, isos, things like that, um, that can migrate and kind of move with that water. Also, there's going to be, you know, little pools and pockets in between some of these rocks, but there is, there are literally hundreds of tons of bugs, you know, in, you know, given several miles of river. When I sample bugs up in like the upper Arkansas river here in Colorado, I mean, there's just looking at the blueing olive nymphs in the fall, there's 1,200 per square meter. So there is lots of bugs in the water. There's lots of food in the water. You know, the, the trout are going to adapt to this. The bugs that can survive there will be found there still. Okay. Well, let's get back into these boxes that match hatches. So do you have – is it a database, a spreadsheet? How do you figure out if someone says, I'm going to the beaver kill in October – how would you go about selecting the flies? Right. So what we've done over the past, gosh, decade was really start to build out um, a, it's a database of invertebrates. And we've been able to harvest, you know, um, federal uh, samples and state samples and, and collegiate samples. And then we can extrapolate. I mean, this is super geeky. I mean, but what we'll do is we'll be able to draw these connections between watershed and elevation. And we, we factor in all the elements as to, you know, where these bugs in these waters are going to be in their life cycle at any given point of the year. So we know what bugs, you know, live in the beaver's kill or the bighorn or the, the Deschutes in Oregon. And based on when our clients tell us they are fishing these rivers, the specific section of river, because that might have to do with elevation and water temperatures and, and, and snowpack. We factor in all that in. We can say, based on the bugs that live there, these are the life cycles of those flies on that water, when and where you're fishing. And then we have knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Upwards of 600,000 flies in the shop now, and so we can exhaustively then match down to the life cycle of those bugs what's going to be on that water. So... It's been a, an arduous task. Um, we have st a statistician helping us with our algorithm to really move this process forward. Um, but, you know, all that geeky stuff is on the back end. What our clients do is they hop on the website, ascentflyfishing.com. They choose biologist-packed fly selections, and then they answer seven questions for us. And so and there's like – What are the like seven questions off yeah, the top of your head? Do you know them or gonna, should I go to the list? Yep. Oh, yeah. No, I got them. Um, they're going to tell us their budget. I'm never going to hard sell anyone. So they'll say, I got $50 for this weekend trip or I got $200 for a season, a seasonal box for the South Fork of the Holstons. They tell us their skill level. So if someone's a beginner, I'm probably going to go you know, focus more on these generalist type patterns, the, the pheasant tails, the hare's ears, the, the elk hair caddis, the, the patterns that are going to fish over a greater period of seasons on more waters, I want to get them established as a beginner. If they're an intermediate or, or an expert angler, 
we might get a little more focused and specific to this hatch and multiple life cycles. And as they bring that box home, they're going to see, you know, oh, I got some of these other patterns and they'll, they'll flesh it out with what they have. So their, their budget, their, you know, how advanced they are, they can specify, I only want dry flies, I only want wet flies, or you're the biologist, you choose. And that's what I prefer. But some people only like fishing dry flies and we'll respect that and we will, you know, match accordingly. Um, they uh, then tell us if they prefer repetition of key patterns. We call that going deep. That means give me the, if it's a Cahill hatch, I want to make sure I have three Cahills in case I lose one in the trees. I got, you know, some standbys. Or do they want us to go a little wider? I mean, do they want us to touch on more of the hatches, more of the life cycles with fewer flies? So that's question, um, I think, three. And then uh, they tell us the specific waters, the specific dates. And then if there's any um, notes they want to add, you know, I'm going to be fishing below, you know, this dam on the White River, and I'm going to be floating. So that would help us determine, you know, floating, we might be focusing a little more on these types of patterns versus walk and wade. And uh, so that comes through. And then we crunch all the data on our end, and we build them a fly box that's organized by hatches and life cycles. All the wet patterns are on one page with a mid-row, mayfly row, caddis row, stoneflies, et cetera. And then mirrored on the opposite side of the box on those same rows are the adult life cycles of each of those hatches, adult midges, adult mayflies, adult caddis. We lay it out like a book. And yeah, I mean, all they have to do is tie it on and net the fish. Are the fly shops in these areas purchasing these kits to sell themselves that would just make their lives so much easier it would yeah no i mean currently i think ascent fly fishing is the only biologist owned and operated you know fly shop in the u.s that i know of so as this algorithm gets built out and we can automate that that might be something that we would you know come into agreements with different shops to utilize but right now uh, i can say we're the only ones uh that aren't, I mean, we're not guessing. We know exactly the bugs in the waters you're fishing, exactly where they're at and when they're there, and, and we can match it better than anyone else. Now, we, you know, I guess we can segue into this section of how much should an angler know about entomology to be a successful angler? Right. Right. So, like we mentioned, blooming olives before, but they're also known as betas, and then there's probably another name. So, between scientific name, general common name, and an angler name, I mean, there's a lot out there. Do you think you're just taking out the intimidation of a lot of the entomology? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's fly fishing can be intimidating for a number of reasons. I mean. The price, for the most point, for most people is pretty intimidating. There's a high cost of entry, or there can be, depending on where you shop. Going into a fly shop, um, historically, um, there are a number of fly shops that have probably given a bad name to to the good ones. But oftentimes, there's you know a bunch of bearded guides in the back, and they're just kind of looking at people when they come in, and people are intimidated to ask you know what are seen as novice questions, and so. There's that intimidation, that kind of barrier to entry. And then we speak in a different language. We Like you mentioned scientific names. And so that's the, the actual Latin names in Greek orders that we 
that the scientific community calls these bugs. And then there's the common names. So, you know, there's 1,261 species of caddisflies, and they all have a Latin name, but we just say that's a caddisfly. So that's a common name. We'll say that's a green sedge. Well, there's probably 40 or 50 different species, scientific names that we put under the umbrella of green sedge. So I think, you know, what's what's more important is for anglers to know just the, the common names are are sufficient. And and then within that, um, when choosing the flies in the shop, it's kind of like going into Baskin Robbins. There's 31 flavors for every single hatch. And, and again, I want to simplify it and make sure you know, these are the key patterns for you to match this hatch. You don't need all 31. So again, simplifying it, breaking it down, but it's essential. If you want to catch fish, you need to know what they're eating. I mean, that's every angler of all time is been asking, what are they biting on? And for people to be able to say, these are the characteristics to say, you know, this is a mayfly. And these are the colors that say it's a blooming olive. That's going to that level of information will allow them to get to the right patterns in their box. That's, that's essential. And then more specifically, what about sizes? So when you pack, are you having like a size 14, 16, 18 blooming olive, or are you going right. to send them one that's sort of in the middle? Great question. So part of that is going to be based on, on budget. Part of that is going to be based on season and then also, you know, region. So, um, you know, I was just out in the, the shop packing some orders, and for someone who has a, a spring box for a given section of river, the blooming olive species primarily in the spring are going to be in that 18 to, to 20 range. So, you know, in the fly fishing world, that's a, a larger, you know, blooming olive pattern. If I'm packing a fall kit, I'm going to be doing size, you know, 20, 22, 24s. Um, it's uh, just smaller, you know, subspecies of our blooming olives in the fall. So, I mean, we we figure that out, you know, based on the seasons and whatnot that our clients are are telling us they're going to fish. You know, for the aquatic life cycles, um, that's a place where a lot of people don't know what they're looking at when they're sampling or, or know what sizes to fish. If someone said, you know, I'm going to be fishing uh, the Smokies, and one person wants a spring box, the other person wants a four-season box. And I'm, you know, matching to the uh, the Cahill nymph. Um, if it's a four-season box, I am going to span the sizes more um, because right as they're hatching, you know, they're hatching as a, as a size 16, you know, maybe a 14, but, you know, a 16. So my nymphs and my emergers are going to be in that largest size also, a size 16. But give it a month, the eggs have hatched again, all of a sudden that Cahill is no longer a 16. They're a size 30. I'm not fishing that. But in the subsequent months, it's an 18. or It's a it's a 22, it's a 20, it's an 18. And then if I'm doing a four-season box, I might fill in some of those smaller spaces so that as that season progresses, they'll have the flies to, to fish that Cahill year-round. Are there non-arthropod species you guys do? Worms, scuds? Uh... Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we, in the shop, uh, again, we, we just actually bought out another shop and we we, liquid, you know, we grabbed their 110,000 flies. So that's what Ooh. pushed us over 600,000 patterns. But yeah, we cover all the crustaceans, all the, all the worms, um, you know, your different, uh, streamers and leeches and bait fish and young trout, your sow bugs, uh, you know, crane fly larvae. We cover it all. Um, every life cycle of every major hatch 
in every in, in the lower 48, we've got covered. And when it comes to Patagonia, uh, we're starting to do a lot in Germany and Bavaria. Um, you know, we're just building our da- data and, and building out our, our selection to match those hatches as well. That's impressive. And you are also one of the most just organized individuals in the industry that I've come across. You knew your <laughs> My, Skype account. Nobody yeah, knows I, your Skype account. I did. It's a first. Well, I mean, yeah, we're uh, we're doing business all around the world now, so I'm I'm, I'm on it a lot. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're just your emails or everything is it's just articulate, well laid out, and thorough. Like everything's there that needs to be there, and nothing that doesn't need to be there. Well, thank it's a, you. You're very efficient at what you do. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, my, my wife might beg to differ, but uh, yeah, she she keeps it rolling here as well. Oh, my neighbor came down to give me this monitor the other night. I was like, dude, you don't want to see my office. He's like, let's go install it. And I was like, seriously, it hasn't been organized. In three. And he opened the door and he's like, damn. Like he closed it. And was like, I'm going back up. Yeah, I, I might. What's what's that show on Netflix? Maria Kondo now. You know, she's, the organizing, uh, organizing lady. Yeah, she should. No, no, she might need to come over and help tidy up the shop a bit. Yeah, so I need to go to our big thrift store because apparently everyone's getting rid of their good stuff. And our yeah, th- I, I'm know. out of books right now, so I need to hit up the thrift store tomorrow anyway. Maybe we'll find some Helioses in there or something. Dude, Let's all go. I've seen brand new Patagonia wading boots felt in the thrift store. Yeah, it's pretty well. crazy. Uh, bugs. So if somebody wants to start their own bug collection, how would they go about doing that? And do you suggest they go larval insects to look at in their office or about pinning things that are dry, like beetles and hoppers and adult caddisflies? I mean, all of those, all the life cycles, um, are going to be pertinent to really learning their rivers, uh, learning where they fish. As I as I do entomology classes around the U.S., I, I talk about kind of the cycles and the patterns that we see on the water and in nature are very similar to the cycles and patterns we might see if, if you're a gardener. So in gardening, there's a season when we'll plant a seed for each of our different, you know, vegetables that we're going to grow. And each of those vegetables kind of, you know, spend their day in the sun, they grow up, and then they're on the menu at roughly the same time each year, you know, maybe given a, a couple week window based on temperature, based on sun, based on water, we're going to see that same kind of growth cycle and same type of repetition year to year in the water with trout foods. So one of our companies, it's kind of where the science meets the fly. It's called River Oracle. And we have match the hatch kits and we have invertebrate vials that when we're on the river, you can you know, use your seine, you pull that bug off the water, you put it in this vial, you, you mark, this is the water temperature, this is the season, this is the date, this is the type of habitat I saw this in, all that's included in these kits. Put a little bit of uh, ethyl alcohol in there, and you're going to see that same bug in that same life cycle, in that same size and color, roughly year to year. So you'll start to not just know what's going to happen in this week next year, you can begin to anticipate. You bring that home. You identify it. You know, oh, that's a golden stone, and that's typically going to hatch after two years in this water, and it's going to hatch in this season. So I should get ready with some of my dry golden stones when I come back and fish that next season. So it's almost like a, a three-dimensional journal or hatch chart, and the people that do that are going to be out fishing everyone else on the water. So uh, yeah, I definitely recommend uh, you know collecting bugs and those little glass vials. 
they're half an ounce each. So two of them on the way to the river is a shot of bourbon. And then you bring your bugs out on the way. I mean, what gets better than that? I like that. Are there circadian rhythms in nature that people could look for to know when hatches are going to start or when the like the annual periodicity of them is going to come around? Like you've got the Mother's Day caddis hatch out there or the squalas in the northwest. Right. I mean, again, you are going to see those. I mean, those patterns and you can begin to anticipate. Um, but as you start collecting bugs, you're going to go to your river and, you know, maybe – you know, in, in one month, uh, your mayfly nymphs are going to be, you know, a certain size and very dull in color. And then a month later, you come back and all of a sudden you see the wing cases on the, the back of the, the thorax where the legs are out on these mayfly nymphs. Are all of a sudden, they're, they're really dark. And you're going to start to see these, these patterns and this progression that when they have those really dark wing pads, that's a sign that they're going to be emerging shortly. We're going to start hatching. And all of a sudden, then you see, you know, a few fins tipping through the surface a few, um, you know, wings of these mayflies starting to stretch out almost like a sail's being raised off of a little sailboat on the surface of the water. Um, you're going to put the pieces together. I, when I weighed, I weighed with a river oracle fly fishing thermometer clipped the laces of my boot. And so when I see the hat start, then I'm going to bend over and I'm going to say, all right, the water temperature is 59 degrees. It's, uh, the third week of July on the Eagle river in, in, uh, in Colorado and the pale morning duns are starting to hatch and I'm going to start putting together like this is the season 62 degrees is the temperature when it hit that's what started the hatch and yeah you can start to anticipate this and and then the next season you go back to that same river you're a week before you start watching those water temperatures rise and you can go back to those notes go back to that vial all right when these water temps hit 62 and this this kind of brick of time we're going to see that hatch start again so it's it becomes predictable. It's it's not voodoo. I guarantee you the guys at fly shops, they don't have a crystal ball that's telling them. Like, it's science. And if you learn the triggers and learn the patterns, you're going to start catching a lot more fish. Indeed. Are there places in streams and different stream types versus, like, the tailwater on the blue versus out on the dream stream that bugs are going to be found at different locations and that anglers can focus on specific insects where they're going to be found. Like I've noticed on our Creek here, I only catch caddis flies in the Riffley rocks. So okay. are there yeah. ha habitats within different streams where people can know that fish there are going to be feeding on a more specific insect than in a different part of the stream? Absolutely. I mean, just like, you know, animals, you know, in, in the air, in terrestrial animals, you're going to have, you know, your, your pikas and, and bighorn sheep up in the tundra, up in the rocks, and you're going to have your elk in the timber, and you're going to have your your deer in the sage uh, out here in Colorado. Your different families of bugs will concentrate in the habitats that are more suitable for them to get food and grow and, and reach that next life cycle so they can pass on their DNA. So typically as we go up and down the rivers, you're going to see you know three main habitat types. You're going to have riffles, and a riffle is – a steep section of river where that water is churning and it's tumbling down the mountain. So we're losing elevation fast. It's typically a little bit shallower and you're going to find some coarse gravel or, you know, softball to boulder size rocks. And uh, it's, it's fast, shallow, well oxygenated water. And that's really where you're going to find the most bugs, greatest diversity. So most types 
and then greatest density, the most weight of food and bugs are going to be found in the ripples. And you're going to find your stoneflies, a lot of your caddisflies, your mayflies, some midges. You know, there's a lot of, lot of stuff going on in the riffles. As you move upstream of the riffle, typically you're going to come into a run. And a run is going to be slightly deeper, slightly shallower pitch, so it's not flowing as fast. But there's a pretty good, pretty good uh, flow. And the surface of the water is ripply. It's like privacy glass, but it's not white water. And so in that slower, less oxygenated water, there's some sediment, some stuff on the bottom. We're going to start seeing a shift, more of those um, helgromites, more of those crane fly larvae, aquatic worms. And then we'll find a good number of like crawling type uh, mayflies, still some caddisflies, but much less stoneflies. Go upstream a little more, you're going to see a glassy surface, really slow and flat, and that's going to be a pool. And that pool is going to be deep. It's going to be slow, and in that slow water, all the sand and muck and grit that's been flowing down the river is going to settle out and pan out into the bottom of that pool. So we get that stinky muck on the bottom. And, you know, mayflies and caddisflies and stoneflies, they're going to drift through, but they don't want to be there. That's not their home. And what that's really home to is a lot of our sow bugs, our scuds our crayfish, our young trout and sculpin, um, leeches, and uh, and then a lot of midges and coronamids, those burrowing little midges, they love the muck. And we go upstream of that pool, we're back into the next riffle. It's like a riffle pull repeat. You're going to see that all the way up the river. This makes me want to go play in the creek. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah, all right. Man. I'll uh, see you out there. Do you guys, do you all have a, an aquarium at the office with local stuff in it i i don't know but we do have you know we have a beaver pond right behind the shop so we can go out there and play but uh no uh no, no aquariums right now just not the bandwidth to, to keep think, that and the shop dog alive that's also when you go into like i remember going into st pete's in high school and they had a, a trout in an aquarium but i don't remember bugs or anything if i were to work in a, a small fly shop i think that'd be one of the integral things is to have on display the local organisms that people are coming in to buy a mimic of than to go catch fish. And you also so, get to see them. I can see yeah. how things interact. I don't get to see how scuds really interact in the wild or how mayflies swim, but I get to see it in my aquarium right here. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that would be, that'd be great. I have a buddy uh, down in Colorado Springs. He has He'll bring like a, a little mobile stream with him with bugs to, to different events. So, I mean, to observe that would certainly help you as, as an angler and an amateur, you know, scientist. But, yeah, it'd be a ton of fun. But, uh, yeah, we don't we don't have one just yet. Maybe at the shows we set up a really big one, like tank, like a touch and feel tank for kids. Absolutely. Pick up Absolutely. stuff. I mean, at the very least, those glass vials with those samples. Um, you know, put them in alcohol, and and we have those on top of every display. So as we can talk about, these are the salmon flies, or the squalas, or the golden stones, or yellow sallies in this water at this time of year. I can actually show them the actual size, colors, profiles of that fly, and actually all of our fly tires. Um, when we train our tires, uh, we go through entomology training with them, and they have samples of every major life cycle of every major hatch in North America. So when they tie those patterns. They can match those proportions and, and characteristics. Yeah, that's got to be more efficient because right now, I mean, I can't even see the mayflies unless I flip over a rock during the day because they're out at night. 
so I turn right. the flashlight. I run in here and turn the flashlight on, and everything freaks out. It, they're like yeah. all the scuds are like cockroaches. They all scatter. Exactly. And the mayflies yeah. crawl under. Yeah, the stoneflies are super active at night, but I've got to search for them. I can see you got it in a vial. It's always there. But that's a really great observation. And a lot of people ask, why is fishing so good at dawn and dusk? Or why are trout feeding so aggressively at night? And that's because, I mean, in a world where your predator hones in on you based on vision primarily, so trout are sight predators, these bugs have evolved or been made to be more active and they will actually jump up into drift and migrate at night. And, you know, they're, they're looking for greener pastures you know, better food, better environment to, you know, reach their next life cycle. So the bugs are more active at those low light hours. And that's exactly what you're observing in your tank. I mean, other people wouldn't have probably known that, you know, had you not said that. Yeah. I, I, I down here every night, I'll come in and turn the flashlight on and freak them out. And I learned that I used to have trapdoor snails. They do not like when you turn on your UV curing light. They, mm, they go into their shell and they drop off the side of the glass. It really bothers them. Interesting. I found that out by accident. Oh, you're my type of geek. I, yeah, I, appreciate, dude. I love it. So a couple more bug questions before I get into um, where you guys get your flies and all that. Do you have a hatch bucket list that you've never been able to experience? Like, I want to go up and see the hexes on the Great Lakes where they have to use snow plows to clear the bridges. Absolutely. That is definitely uh, high on the list. I want, I'd like to get up to, to Labrador or somewhere, you know, Alberta, somewhere where they have the, the lemmings that run. Yes. Um, I love to, you know, catch a big, uh, you know, mid 20 inch brook trout, uh, on one of our mouse patterns. Um, gosh. Yeah. I mean, I want to go to New Zealand. They have some really unique, um, you know, olive stone flies and, uh, the blow you know, flies. awesome. Yeah. Um, the cicada hatch on the green is something that I want to hit every year. I want to go back and catch the salmon flies on the Deschutes. Um, I miss that. Um, yeah, I want to fish cicadas in the Southeast. There's, there's not enough time. There's not enough time to go to all the places I want to fish. Yeah. Like, uh, Dunn magazine and, uh, Heather Hobson just did that road trip. We could do like follow the hatches across the country road trip. that'd be awesome if, if uh you want to sponsor this trip uh sims or sage or orvis just let us know and, and we will we'll do it absolutely that sounds awesome are there any myths or urban legends to debunk about entomology that you may have just heard throughout the years and you're like seriously like i you know people see crane flies and they're like oh my god it's gonna bite me and i'm like that's not a mosquito you know, I, yeah, I think people are a little squeamish of, of some of the bugs. A lot of people uh, here in the the Rockies will confuse helgramites with with stoneflies. Uh, we don't have helgramites, um, and so they're a little squeamish about picking up a stonefly nymph. Um, but if they've ever been bitten by a helgramite, I, I understand why. Um, but I think people get very fixated on what's the name of this fly and what's the name of the fly in my box. And I mean, over and over, it's just like a mantra I repeat. I'm like. The name of the flies don't matter. They don't matter. The trout don't know the names of the flies. They don't speak Latin. Like, what is the size of the bug you're seeing on the water? Look in your fly box. What is the profile? Is the wing standing straight up off the back? It's a mayfly. Let's look for maybe a parachute or a, a wolf in your box. What's the color? Let's get close. So it's simplifying it. You know, don't get so fixated. Uh, you know, the fly shops and fly tires, you know, we, we make money by selling 
flies. And so we, oftentimes we say, oh, this pattern is working really well. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. That's not the only pattern that's going to work well. There is 100 fly patterns that can match any hatch and any life cycle that will probably work equally well. So use what you have, get close, and you're going to catch fish. So if you have you know one fly that might knock out several species, are there patterns that could look like several different genre or orders of insects? You know, if you want one fly to cover three different things, do you have right. just really buggy looking stuff out there to sell? Yeah. So, um, you know, defining, so order is a scientific word. Um, that means, uh, this is like, you know, the common name might be, this is the family. An order of insects would be like ephemeroptera, which are the order of mayflies or diptera, which is our, our midges. So that's orders. And so, yeah, um, I have classified patterns that can cross over between caddisflies and stoneflies and match both. I call those crossover patterns. And um, on our website, we have a learn to fly fish section and our, our sci-fly blog. Um, we have, uh, you know, articles over five years worth of articles that break down these. And we have one on, on crossover patterns, but a pattern like, the parachute caddis. It has a turkey quill kind of cupped over the, the abdomen, has a little white tuft of a parachute, and that will fish. We, we carry that in a size 12 to a 20. So that can be fished as a number of caddis species. Caddis hold their wings in a little gable or a little A-frame over their back at rest. But it also fish very well for an early brown stonefly, you know, which you have on the east and up north. Um, so that'll cross over between those stoneflies and the caddis. Um, gosh, other good crossover patterns. I mean, you know, hare's ears and pheasant tails. You know, people typically think that, you know, a hare's ear is is a mayfly nymph, is is a pheasant tail. You know, in a size 12 to a 22, they they, they can be fished as a pheasant tail. Or they can be fished as an early life cycle stonefly nymph or a damselfly nymph. I'm, I'm working on an article right now, and it's kind of paint-by-number fly fishing. And it's talking about, you know, when I wade, I have five Sharpies in my pack, you know, red and orange and green and brown and black. And based on what I see, I can take a hare's ear, and I'm fishing in a lake now, and I see a bunch of damsel nymphs. I'm going to color out with my orange Sharpie or my, my olive Sharpie. And now I have a damsel nymph. So, you know, thinking outside the box, you know, coloring on, clipping on, cutting off hackles and tails, you can make, you can quadruple, you can, you know, multiply your fly selection just by using some Sharpies and, and a nipper, and, and you can make it match any hat you want. MacGyver would have been a great fly eagler. <laughs> some bubble gum and a pine cone yeah i helped that girl in la get that uh that fish with the bubble gum wrapper but then he had some serum that made him delirious it's a good episode it was uh, uh russian spies i think <laughs> all um, right so all your flies we talked about this at the virginia show that you're not just in colorado you're traveling to africa personally to set all of your manufacturing up you want to 
go into that a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. So most it's it's amazing how many people come into the shop and like, are you tying all these flies? And like, you know, we're tying fifty thousand flies a week. I, I wow. appreciate the the sentiment, but no, um, t- you know, commercially tied flies um, are either being done in Sri Lanka, Thailand, or Kenya. And actually, Kenya was the the birthplace of commercial fly tying. So wherever um, the Brits went, they brought trout, they stocked them, and then they brought fly fishing. And so they've been tying flies in Kenya for over 150 years. And people, uh, when they go in the Orvis, they're buying flies from Kenya. Their factory is about two hours uh, from my factories. So we have two factories, 38 full-time tires, and... They've, on average, been tying between 10 to 30 years and are exceptional. And um, we have, I would I would venture to say, not just some of the best trained uh, fly tires in the world, um, but some of the, the most cared for. And they're certainly a part of our family. But, yeah, we, um, my wife speaks Swahili. My wow. kids go with us. Um, we shot a documentary there um, this last year kind of sharing their story of, of how their lives have benefited and their communities benefited from tying flies with us. But, um, yeah, we, we do entomology training with all of our tires. So when we can explain about the abdomen of this species of mayfly is this size and the tails of this length, they have the actual insects in front of them to gauge these lengths and proportions. And also, you know, fly fishing is about that excitement of getting out there and wetting that fly feeling that that tug and in the the fly tires are an integral part of our community so i want them to feel that excitement and opportunity so we do fly casting training with all of our tires and uh, you know teach them this is how they're being used yeah we we send over containers of materials i have five hides going over in february a bushel of uh, pheasant tail feathers we brought over a hundred whiting capes um, in november and we'll do that a couple times a year. And so we got the best material, best uh, train tires, and again, probably some of the best care for and really appreciated tires uh, in the world. I can imagine one of your tires is, you know, goes to a dinner party. And someone says, what, what do you do for a living? He says, oh, I tie flies for Americans to catch fish that they're going to throw back in the water. And <laughs> Explain the person's catch like, and release. Yeah, huh. it, I, mean, yeah. I have to do that daily here. The, right. I don't, yeah, I don't well, eat fish. People think it's so, the strangest thing that I teach people to catch fish they're going to throw back. Well, imagine in, in a country where it's 75% unemployment and, I mean, the, the basic uh, dish is called uh, ugali uh, sukumawiki, and that's uh, ugali and kale. I mean, sorry, it's cornmeal. It's like grits, but just boiled in water, no salt, and, you know, white grits and kale just and that's that's what they eat and so to explain like, yeah, throwing food. all this meat back yeah that's uh it's pretty mind-boggling wow and do you have specific tires like one person knocks out the best copper johns so that's what they do or can they tie a variety of patterns perfectly Right. So, you know, our tires, they, they do specialize like Barnabas, you know, he's an older gentleman. He's been tying 29 years. You know, we ask him, you know, what's your hope for the future? And his hope is to be able to save up and buy a cow and graze it well so he can drink milk slowly with his wife in the evening. And you know, like, we, we want to help make that happen. But Barnabas, he ties all of our bass bugs. You know, he's, 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 uh, 
uh, hair stack and maniac and he does a great job so yeah each of our tires has their you know their dry flies their wets their nymphs whatever that they specialize in so when someone asks me you know where do your flies come from i mean you know i can tell them not just oh you know this isn't an umqua fly or solitude or catch or whatever like i can tell you this is the specific tire that tied this pattern and she has two girls and um you know one is nine and the other is two and i can tell you you know what you know her sister is studying in college because ascent fly fishing is helping to pay for that for that sister so yeah we um there's no success for for my company for ascent without success shared with our tires and so we are committed to to doing things differently and not just making this a a hand-to-mouth existence like most of the fly tying world Um, we want them to thrive their kids to go to school, them to have health care. And, and that's what we are, you know, investing in as a, as a company. So they have benefits besides just having a job and you're actually providing them health care and other things they would not be able to get otherwise. So, yeah, in Kenya, I mean, in, in Kenya, it's roughly 75% unemployment. The The government puts peachy statistics online, but on the ground, um, it is, it's feast or famine. There's Less than 1% that holds all the wealth, no middle class, and everyone else is just subsiding on whatever they can get. And so for our 38 tires, they typically have 7 to 10 dependents under each of them that is relying on them. Um, one of our, our young tires, she's, she's 23. She's sassy. She's super fun. She's um, you know a single gal, and she's like, you know, I want to have a family someday. But right now with my tying salary, I take care of my parents. My sister, who's a widow, and she's paying for her her four sisters' kids to go to school. Wow, that's a and, lot to shoulder. It is, it is, and for I mean, across the board, in in most uh, you know fly tying factories, they get paid per piece. You tie a dozen flies, this is your wage. But as as we have grown, um, how we kind of measure success is. You know, two years ago, we were able to start putting aside 1% of sales and just giving that back to the tires direct as a bonus. This last year, we were able to up that to 3%. And when we were, you know, with, with our tires this year and we gave out the bonuses, I mean, Kenyans are very reserved people. But one of the uh, the tires was, you know, approached our, our manager's wife and she's like, you know, this is like, I almost cried. This paid for school for both of my daughters all next year. So to know that, you know, these little girls have an education and that's the opportunity now to, to move up and move out is, I mean, that's going to make that generational change. Um, so when, yeah, people ask where the flies come from, I can say, you know, this is the tire, their daughter's studying this in college and we're going to make sure their family has a bright future. So we do a profit share. And then this year we, uh, started a, um, we created non, um, interest-free loans to cover healthcare. So as there's an, uh, an issue in the family, they can draw from that and then just pay it back, you know, 10 cents a dozen over time as they tie to, to, you know, pay that back into the fund for other tires to use as well. That's great stuff you're doing. It's uh are you a tired, go- tired person? Like, is it hard to get up in the morning? Or you just beat I, or, but you just I got am. such a cool, you, I mean, that's why you want to get up in the morning because you're making a difference and doing cool stuff. We're driven. If we don't grow, I mean, if, if God doesn't bless this, like there's a whole community that that suffers. And so, I mean, we want to share, you know, this story and that the fly fishing community is more than your kids that you're teaching to fish and your friends that you're you're ribbing because they just caught a tree instead of a trout. I mean, that is a vital part of the community. But 
for fly fishing to be sustainable here, it's more than wet in our hands. It's got to be sustainable. There's got to be that shared hope of opportunity with the tires. And, uh, and we want to, you know, bridge that gap and give them a face and give them a name, give them a voice and say, you know, we appreciate you. We're going to pay you as the artisans that you are. And we want your families to thrive the same way we want our families to thrive. And so I wake up driven when I, I speak at the fly fishing show or ISC or I'm going to be at the Texas uh, beer and fly fishing festival in March. I mean, I'm pumping uh, Toto Africa and a bunch of Swahili music on the way to the airport. Cause I am driven like this has to grow if these families are going to thrive. And so, um, I mean, this is our passion, you catching fish, but also seeing these families thrive. So, you know, if I never have a big name shop or I don't get to do all the books I want to write, like, that's okay. But I mean, if these kids, uh, get a college education and they move up and move out, like that's, that's success for us. Right. I mean, every time you mention the word Swahili, I think of the, the 18 movie where B.A. Baracus <laughs> and, uh, face, not face, uh, Murdoch get their passport switched and they're at the airport and they're going through customs. And, you're dating yourself here, Rob. No, the new AT movie. Okay. Oh God. With Bradley right. Cooper. Well, now, now you're, you're so, sharing how your poor taste in movies that you oh, actually watched the new AT movie. I did. <laughs> uh, Jessica, your Jessica listeners Biel. can hear the shame. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd like to think my wife looks like Jessica Biel sometimes. All right. Well, well lucky go. you, man. Yeah. Uh, any entomology, match hatching, uh, entrepreneurial questions that I didn't ask or something you want to go over before we go to some silly questions? You know, yeah, I, I'm an open book. So, um, I mean, my, my contact, my person, like my business mobile is all on the Ascent Fly Fishing website. And as you know, your listeners have a question, I mean, I get texts of bug pictures all the time and I'm, now 6:30 in the morning when I open answering you know it's this this fly and these are the the patterns that'll match that to you know someone across the country so I am a resource I mean the the blog articles the YouTube channel the podcast on our website all of that is built really to to equip them with this kind of insider knowledge we have and help them catch fish so right. information is always accessible without a purchase like I'm not worried about selling more flies, but if they need flies, uh, it's going to touch a lot of lives. We'd, we'd be happy to hook them up as well. Do you think an app for a smartphone might be in the future? It's it's in the works. Right on. It's in the works. Yeah. Sweet. Uh, any good websites that you, for bugs? Like I go to bugid.net. There's some other. Any any cool bug websites people can check out? Right. Bugid.net, yeah, that's that's like a little little geekier. Goes in a little deeper than than most. Um, Troutnut is that's all, the photography is awesome on that. Yeah, he does a great job. I'd love to connect with him sometime. But yeah, there's a there's a lot of great. Uh, I think it's Jason uh, Nuremberg or something like that. Um, that's a great resource, uh, also for fly fishers. But there's not a ton out there. I mean, if people want to understand what do the patterns I have match. Um, we have 3,600 skews or 40, uh, tons of skews on flies, but I list the family, the species, the hatch, the life cycle, where it is in the water column under every single pattern that we sell. That's so awesome. someone can look up, what, what can I fish this like cahill pattern for? It's so much more than just a cahill hatch. You know, it's like in these sizes, you can fish it for a pale evening done, for a pale morning done, for a sea like we, so, we tell you when to fish and what to what fish. What would so a that's pale a great 
pale morning done in scientific nomenclature, what would that be? Oh, gosh. I mean, again, that's that's the, the common name, and there's going to be probably eight different species you know, Bunch. in a region that we're going to clump under that. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Well, let's do some other questions now. Yeah, hit me. Uh, are you related to anyone famous? I am. I am not. I, I yeah, no, I, uh, we just did that 23 and me gene thing. Um, I have a lot of Neanderthal in me, which explains why I, I like to catch trout with my teeth probably, but, uh, no, no one famous that I know of. Um, yeah, I would just, yeah. I'm Our friends did the 23 and me and, or actually they didn't do it. A girl in California did it. And it turned out she had a whole family over here. Her mom had given her up for adoption. Wow. And when she was in college, and then she ended up having a whole family that we grew up with, and I don't think she ever told them. And wait, she got given up in college? Like she no, no, the, the mom was in col- the mom was in college, <laughs> so she gave up the baby. She was I, raised I like in California, the and then found yeah. out she has siblings here in Virginia. And now, to, just to they had all done the DNA match, and I guess two things clicked, and wow. they found each other. That's amazing. But uh, I mean, it, the narrative in my mind is going to be like, she was like misbehaving freshman year. So her, her parents put her up for adoption. I like that narrative better. Yeah. We don't have to pay for college anymore. <laughs> That's right. Uh, That's right. I'm, I'm going to hold on to that option. Yeah. What's your favorite album? Oh gosh. You know, I, um, I go back to a bunch of classics. Uh, you know, I, I still go back to my old offspring and stuff. So, I mean, uh, my, my kids uh, listen to a lot of punk music with me. More recently, I've been doing some Gregory Allen Isakov, but a guy named Shane Koizan. This is going to sound really geeky, kind of granola. He's a spoken word poet that does it to music, but he is his album Debris is absolutely phenomenal, life changing. Um, so I will listen to that to psych myself up for the next project. Nice. Um, Pinned to the Dish, Pinned to the Dish by Shane Koizan. Um, uh, you can look it up on YouTube. It's it's life changing. If you had one deli meat to eat the rest of your life, what would it be? Corned beef. Got to go going back to the Irish. Nice. Yes, yeah. we do uh, um, Irish yeah, egg rolls. Oh, I need that in my life. Yeah. So then we've got the air fryer. So once corned beef comes back to the stores, we're making some corned beef egg rolls in the air fryer. Mm. Were you making those at the Virginia show? I did not see corned beef egg rolls on the. No, I, I didn't. That was all frozen stuff I made. Okay. Well, but next time I come back, I want corned beef egg rolls. We did a Thai coconut milk marinated chicken thigh skewer in the rotisserie with a homemade peanut sauce the other night with jasmine rice. And that this was, is the cooking portion of the show. I like yeah. this. That's yeah, when my neighbor yeah. came over and was like, yo, I got an extra monitor. So now I've gotten like a 70-inch HD flat screen TV for free, and I just got a huge computer monitor for free. Man, I need neighbors like yours, yeah. and I need a, a cook like you in my life. This, this has got to happen. It's good stuff. If you had a superhero power to make you a better angler, what would you choose? Gosh. Hmm. You know, like that spidey sense? I like that spidey sense, you know, when he can, like, detect, you know, he's, he's going to get punched or detect the strike as it's coming. Everything like when, slows down. When Flash I goes think, to punch him and he, like, looks left, looks right. Yeah, yeah, it's just dodging and slow-mo. That would be ideal. And, uh, yeah, you, you sense that strike, the slowest tick, and then everything slows down. Super fast set. And then you can just, unstoppable. Like, shoot your web to the other side of the stream and swing over there. You would never have to worry about not being able to cross. Spider-Man's yeah, right? Good. Yeah. Favorite Harrison Ford movie? 
Oh man. Um, got to go back to probably Raiders of the Lost Ark doing some Indiana Jones. All right. Your most unusual fly time material. No, we just, um, we're featured in fly fusion magazine. It's going to be coming out here in the spring edition, but we have a whole series of flies, uh, the Martian invasion. So our Martian mouse, Martian midge and Martian mices, it's all glow in the dark for night fishing. So I'd say we're probably, you know, pretty cutting edge and, and leading the pack when it comes to, to pushing the envelope for night fishing. So the glow in the dark, uh, crystal flash. That's pretty cool. I actually have, I use that for my beetle legs. Really? Because it's stiff. It's old saltwater crystal flash that glows in the dark. You can't get it anymore. I bought a whole yeah. bag of it at Bass Pro in Isla Morada, and they put it in a brown paper bag. And my wife threw that out thinking it was lunch leftovers. No. Oh, my All gosh. Right. Well, we can hook you up. If you had one species of bird to tie with for the rest of your life, what would it be? Uh, I mean – the those big beautiful whiting hackles i would just be you know a, a, a grizzly uh rooster neck and uh yeah that's gonna be the most versatile and then if i if i need to mix it up i can i can hit it with my sharpies but that that's the one do you have any just bizarre phobias that are irrational you know this is getting, this is personal man um so the, the recurring nightmare is my teeth falling out. I have no idea. There's maybe some psychologist yeah, that can tell me. That's a, that's a popular one online if you look it up. Yeah. I'll have that every now means. and then where they just like crack and fall out. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah, they're loose. They're coming out. Um, but no, when it comes to, you know, man, I'll, I'll eat goat organs or, or fish eyes. Like, I mean, I've been around the world. I'll, I'll do anything and I'll try anything. I mean, we've had chicha that would just spit back in the pot in the amazon um so yeah I'll, I'll drink it i'll eat it i'm not not really squeamish is there any animal you're just terrified of that's not like phobia based there's there's um like there's if you saw not, one on a narrow street you would like try to scale the walls there's not no no i'm uh i'm pretty pretty stable have you had to deal with hyenas you know, we saw them in africa i mean they're you know, we uh, we stayed in a tent uh, a couple nights uh, towards the end of the trip, and and you hear them like outside cackling and the lions and stuff. But uh, we had a whistle, so I, I think we we're we we're pretty safe. But I mean, no, they, no no close run-ins. I think they bite as strong as a mako shark, like nineteen thousand pounds per square inch or something. They can crunch a four-inch bone. That's what I heard. Yeah, well, they, their poop is white because they eat bone. Well, that's they, they <laughs> clean up all the scraps. Once the vultures are done, they go in there because they can eat the marrow. Well, that just wiped out all the uh, the peanut sauce teriyaki chicken leg talk. I mean, I'm not hungry anymore. Thank I you. I have you now. When I went to Africa, I took pictures of everything's poop. I was a biology major at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, let's see. Uh, where's the best sandwich you've ever eaten? Wow. You know, I mean, it's. Maybe there's like some great Jewish delis uh, in, in New York and Queens that my father-in-law took me to once he used to go to. And they just make some stacked Rubens that are exceptional. But yeah, you need you need a well thought out. And then I guess there is um, a place called Heart of Jerusalem Cafe down in Colorado Springs and Manitou Springs. So if you ever fish 11 Mile Canyon, you got to stop there. But I'm going to send our buddy Justin have, there. He lives down there. What's it called? Heart of Jerusalem Cafe, Heart of Jerusalem. and I will drive 45 minutes out of my way, and every element of their euros are absolutely authentic to what you'd have in the Middle East. It's so thought out and exceptional. So yeah, uh, between Heart of Jerusalem and, and the Jewish Deli, 
Man, it's kind of both sides of the wall over there, but I love them both. All right, I'm putting a star on there. There we go. All right, so next time I go visit Justin down there, we're going to eat there. His wife got mad because after fishing, he ate all of her halibut fingers. And I didn't even know halibut fingers was a food. Yeah, that, that's going to be a chilly night. Yeah, she got pissed at us. So, man, we'll go out and eat next time. Uh, this your your father in law probably has influence on this question. Hot dogs, ketchup or mustard? Ketchup. Really, your father in law wouldn't say no to that. You know what? Uh, yeah, he, I mean, I, I just can't do mustard. There's okay. my phobia. You got it. It's mustard. Goat goat parts, but no mustard. <laughs> right. Yeah. Put them put them in ketchup. All right. Uh, favorite fishing book. You know, Dave Whitlock's, um, you know, aquatic trout food uh, is, is kind of the Bible. It's pretty inspirational for me. And uh, you're not going to meet uh, a better ambassador to the sport, a nicer, more down-to-earth guy. So Dave and Emily are phenomenal people. And, yeah, his book is, is definitely worth uh, worth finding. The first time I met him, I wanted to hug him like, you're the grandpa I never had. Right. Yeah, I, lo- yeah, I, I appreciate him. Looked appreciate up to him so much when I was a kid. I still do. Uh, if you had a DeLorean with a flux capacitor and you could go back in time before modern humans destroyed wild environments, where would you go fish? I'd probably come back to Colorado. There was, uh, uh, gosh, what was it? It was like a, a yelltail cutthroat that used to be huge. I mean, like averaging seven pounds, just, but it's an, it's an extinct species now. Um, but I would have loved to have, have added that to my, my cut slam. Um, so that's, you know, probably hundred, hundred plus years ago. All right. What's the strangest thing you've seen on the water? Gosh, I mean, that's, that's probably going to be stupid stuff me and my friends have been doing, but, uh, I mean, drifting the Yampa once, uh, well, I don't know if this is a family show. There was a, there was a couple in, in warm embrace. Uh, oh yeah. We've seen that river before. Runs through it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We didn't, um, but we didn't know. Yeah, so I was taking producer Jason down the river from shad fishing, and we saw two people. We saw just saw the back of one person on their knees, um, <laughs> right yeah, on the. Do you Potomac. hear any banjos? Do you hear no, banjos? but I mean it was maybe a quarter. Mi- I mean it was basically Georgetown, Washington D.C., just along the river. Like I was like, dude, it's a happy hour day out there. It's it's May and it's eighty degrees and everyone's drinking. Maybe somebody just got in the mood. You know, trout live in beautiful places. It, it just comes over you, I guess. What can yeah, you say? so to speak. All right. Anything else uh, we forgot to mention? We didn't go over your social media and the websites again. Yeah. So, I mean, they, uh, you know, your listeners can can join us uh, on on Instagram and Facebook at Ascent Fly Fishing, A-S-C-E-N-T Fly Fishing. So I'm doing stream side, you know, reports all the time where we're doing videos. We're talking about you know, why this section of water under this, you know, water return from this plant is, is a good fishing spot and you know, what's starting this hatch and we're, we're taking bugs out of the water right into the fly box. So it's a, it is a, a constant lesson and a really positive community. So I'd love people to join us there. Ascentflyfishing.com is our website. Wealth of information. My personal contact information is there and all the bugs they need to be successful. And, uh, yeah, I mean, um, if there are Rocky Mountain listeners, hopefully they can join us at the Fly Fishing Rendezvous. And that's, uh, we have 30,000 square feet for uh, May 4th and 5th at the Western Livestock Complex. And it's going to be probably 60 hours of classes over two days, um, 30 different fly tires, 75 different companies. It's going to be an awesome event. And we hope they'll join us. That's on, uh, that's two big holidays. So you have Star Wars Day and then Cinco de Mayo. 
So you can have like that's, stuff. A, that's right. Jedi's yeah, we'll, with we'll, with uh, fishing vests on. We'll have like lightsabers on their lanyards. Yeah, yeah. Or on their waiter uh, belts. That's right. I mean, the fourth be with you. That's right. So, yeah, important important holidays. Yeah, man. All right, Peter. Thank you so much for your time and keep up the good work, man. You're doing a really cool thing. Thank you, Rob, and thank you for the opportunity to be on the podcast. Absolutely. I Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com. This podcast is brought to you by Freestone Productions at freestoneproductions.com. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, a mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.